Is your job search stuck? Maybe you're not getting any interviews with employers, or maybe you are, but no job offers. Or you may be new and not even know where to start. This is Charles Maxwood, and I'm releasing a new course and ebook on how to find a job as a software developer. The course walks you through the process of finding the types of companies you want to work for, getting their attention, and putting your best foot forward as the candidate they want. I've coached dozens of developers in looking for jobs and have been able to help several people find jobs within two weeks to two months. So whether you're new to development, can't find a great job that fits what you want, or are looking for remote work from an area without a strong tech community, I can help. Go to getacoderjob.com and sign up today. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Elixir Mix. This week on our panel, we have Josh Adams. Yo. Mark Erickson. Hey, friends. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. And this week, we have a special guest, and that's Sasha Yurik. Hello, everyone. Do you want to introduce yourself for those who aren't familiar with you? Okay, so uh, my name is Sasha, and I'm in the Elixir community. I'm mostly known for writing the book called Elixir in Action. I'm also occasionally blogging on the site called theerlangelist.com. And I'm occasionally also present at Elixir Forum, helping people out. So I've been working with Elixir for like about five years or so. And uh, prior to that, I also used Erlang for about two years. And before that, I used other, other technologies like, for example, Ruby, C Sharp, C++, and so on and so forth. But these days, I mostly work with Elixir. Nice. Now, I think we invited you to talk about uh, app env and configuration, mm-hmm. but it sounds like there are a lot of other things we could talk about as well. But why don't we start there with configuring your app and using the app env, and then we can move ahead from there. Sure. So, well, I think yeah, go for it. I think one thing that would be helpful is just kind of a, a little background. Like the idea of configuration has been a topic in the Elixir community, and people having, I don't know, uh, I don't a lot of discussion around it. And, exactly. And, and there's a lot of concern and like, what's the right way? And, you know, part of it is, I think it's a, a change in the way we deploy software, right? Like the idea of the 12 factor apps and we have uh, more Docker kind of containers that are going like an, a container is built and it's going through multiple stages of deployment. And we're wanting to put a lot of configuration just through environment settings. And mm-hmm. so there's, I think, uh, is there any other background you can give to this kind of topic and kind of why this is important? Right. So let's start by clarifying how configuration is mostly done currently. I'm sure that many of uh, the listeners will know that, but still to make sure that we're all on the same page. So like you have your Elixir project and Elixir project is basically a bunch of source uh, files. And then in uh, that folder structure, you have a folder called config. And in there you have a couple of Elixir scripts uh, and these are like called configuration scripts. And that is also like regular Elixir code. And what you do in those configuration scripts, you basically set key values, which are your configuration, whatever that means. We're going to try to find out what exactly configuration is today. But you basically say something like HTTP port is 4000 and database server is localhost and database name is foobar and so on and so forth. So things like that. So that's roughly how configuration works. And then you somehow start your system. And you have these keys available through some API, like application.getEnv and uh, similar functions from the application uh, module. And you fetch those values and uh, you know you do like connect to the database list on the given port and so on and so forth. So that seems like a pretty straightforward way. 
Now it's worth mentioning, uh, as I said, Elixir project is a bunch of source files. However, configuration scripts, they have like special semantics when they are actually executed and that is happening at compile time. So during compilation, configuration files are evaluated and the values are determined. So this sometimes tends to confuse people, especially I would say the ones who came from say Ruby background or I presume other similar dynamic languages where you just ship everything and uh, like ship the source code and run it on your production server. Uh, but with Elixir, Elixir is compiled language. So uh, what we frequently do, or what I would say is the right way, is that you compile your release. So the release is like special term in the Elixir ecosystem. It's a, a compiled artifact, if you will, a bunch of uh, files, and but that, no source files in the release. So you compile your release on the build machine and then you put it to production. I would say this is like a canonical way. And therefore, these, these configuration files are evaluated on your build server rather than on your production server. And that can present a whole a lot of problems and people tend to get frequently confused by, by this thing. I would also like to mention that these configuration files are also used to vary the settings or vary the behavior between different environments. And uh, let me clarify this a bit. So uh, we have like three canonical environments when we're working with Elixir project or Elixir project is called a mix project. Mix is the tool we use. So we have a development environment, a test environment and prod or production environment. And these are basically more like compiled targets, right? So for example, when you're running tests, you're compiling your pro product or project for test environment. And where you're running your classical development, you start your system, you are compiling it for development. And then of course, when you want to release it, you're, you're going to compile it for prod. Now the purpose of these three environments is uh, sometimes confusing people. So the purpose is to do some variations in the compiled output. So for example, in production, I may run some periodical job or I may fetch some feed from some external services and maybe in development, I don't want to do that. And then in test, I might want to have some different behavior. So you're going to have some behavior variation. Maybe in development, you're going to have a debug logging level and in production mode, you're not going to have. But one big thing which these environments are not meant for is to vary, to tie or to couple the compiled artifact to the build or to the execution machine. So uh, what I'm getting at is if I'm compiling for prod or production, I still want to run it on my development machine. Right. So this is a big deal, right? You want to test that actually the real production is working properly on your development machine. At least in some cases you want to do that. So what, what this means is that, for example, the database server is not necessarily tied to the mix environment, right? Like I, on, on my machine, I always have a database locally. So the server is always going to be local host and uh, that doesn't depend on the environment. So there are like these two different dimensions, if you will. You have like configuration of your system, which are some parameter of your system. And then you have the compile time variations, which basically are just some tweaks that determine how a version compiled for tests should behave differently than say version compiled for development or production. Right. So, okay, this is like, let, let's start with this. This was like a brief introduction. That was a thorough introduction. So thank you. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I can talk more, but uh, just, you know, let, let's see where it takes us. <laughs> okay, so there, so we, we kind of have some background on, you know, how the configuration setup is, how we, how we encounter it as an Elixir developer and some of the goals that we have. So what are some of the, uh, so you, you'd mentioned how you feel like the right way is to do, you know, building a release and shipping a release over mm -hmm. instead of code. Um, I agree. That's a great way. So like, what are some of the ways 
that you think someone who's new to Elixir and they're saying, you know, I've got this app and I want to get it deployed. How should they start? Like, where would you like, I don't know what, what uh, tips or tricks or any advice would you have for someone who's like, has their app and they're trying to go to, to production? Mm-hmm. So, uh, of course, I'm assuming that we're talking about something that's not like completely a toy or an experimentational app, right? True. And uh, Right. So we have this thing I mentioned, release, or uh, more precisely, OTP release. And I would say that at least in 99% of the cases, this is what you want to do, right? So I'm leaving that 1% for maybe some specific scenarios where, for whatever reasons, that can't work. But I would say almost always, you really want to have OTP release. And what OTP release is, as I said, it's a compiled folder structure uh, or tarball, however you want to look at it. But there are a bunch of files and folders. You have your compiled binaries. You have all your dependencies and only those dependencies. And you have the minimal Erlang and Elixir, so minimal Erlang runtime system and minimal Erlang and Elixir standard libraries. And it's completely self-sufficient and standalone, right? So you build it, you put that same folder structure on another on your release machine, it has to be the same operating system and the architecture, and you're good to go and stand alone. So why is this good? Because first and foremost, you don't need to install a bunch of compile time dependencies on uh, your uh, production server. So you don't need to install Erlang and Elixir on your production server. And there will be other dependencies, maybe some libraries if you're embedding some native codes, these NIFs, how we call them, so like code written in C, for example. If you're using Phoenix, then you need uh, Node.js. Usually you need Node.js, at least by default on your compiler or your build server, and you don't want to have that on your production. So those kind of things. So this is like the first benefit. The second benefit is that you can actually easily run side-by-side different systems powered by different versions of Elixir and Erlang because the OTP release is completely embedded and self-sufficient. So it comes with its own minimal Erlang installation. Obviously, of course, of course, disk space, disk usage is smaller. And then, which is frequently overlooked with the OTP release, especially when you build it with this uh, library I'm going to mention called Distillery, you have some nice tools for hooking into your uh, production, like getting a development shell in your production and executing a bunch of different commands in the context of your production and troubleshooting the production. And this is like super priceless. So yeah, coming back to the question, I would definitely recommend building an OTP release and deploying as an OTP release. So in theory, what you need is a build server, and the production server. On the build server, you have your dependencies installed, like Elixir, Erlang, Node.js, whatever you need to actually build your project or your release. You build the release, take the tarball, copy it over to the production server, and uh, you run it there. You just start a single command, or more likely you want to integrate it with something like systemd or upstart or, or whatever you're using, and that's pretty much it. Obviously, not everyone has the access to two machines, so what I do is... For example, I have my blog, which is open sourced, and you can actually find it, the, the code there, for my deployment pipeline. I basically use Docker. So I set up build image, which has all these bells and whistles. I build a release, take tarball out of it, so this compiled release, and build another image, which is just built on top of the base operating system, which in my case is Alpine Linux. So I copy over that release there, and you're good to go. Right. So it's, it's the same principle. And you can actually do that now in a single Docker file with from, which is pretty nice. That's what I'm using. Exactly. I actually have to check. I didn't think that I'm using this. Like, you mean multi-stages building? Yeah, yeah. So you you do the builder and you literally just copy the files into the next container, which is the actual output container. Yeah, precisely. 
Yeah, I actually learned I could do that by doing the following the distillery 2.0 for Docker. And I was like, wow, it's like this two-stage thing and it worked and it was brilliant. And it's like I Mm. hadn't hadn't encountered that before, so that was neat. All right, so let me just quickly mention, briefly mention distillery. So I just want to mention officially for those listeners who are new to Elixir, like you want to look into distillery. It's the tool to use for deploying your systems and it has super great guides. I really want to give compliments to Paul there. I mean, the, the library itself is great, but the guides are terrific and he handles a bunch of different edge cases and special scenarios. So like definitely go to distillery and do a walkthrough. There are a bunch of tutorials there. While we're, while we're talking about actually building the release, I was going to mention uh, just sort of one other strategy we use on another project where we actually run on a custom OS is we have just a build server that watches GitHub releases and we'll actually build based on the release and then push it up as the, as the source file. So for people that are thinking, ah, but I don't want to use Docker, there you go, there's an option. Mm. You don't have to use Docker. Docker just makes it like cheaper to get two servers because you can get them on a single machine, right? Right. So are there different types of configuration that you want to put in different places or do you generally recommend that you put them all in the same place in the same way? So, right. So this discussion today, and it's it's probably based on my blog post, uh, which is called Rethinking App and or Application Environment. I have like this uh, somewhat radical uh, opinion that this configuration is mostly bloat and that we as the community tend to put a lot of stuff into these configuration files. So maybe we should, maybe I should mention some of the issues that I have with configuration and then we can discuss the issues and the caveats and then different solutions. And then maybe we can go through some alternatives the way I I see them. So, right, we have these configuration files I mentioned. And one problem is that they tend to be very bloated. They tend to contain a lot of stuff. So I mentioned in the introduction that uh, they contain some, some of these compile time variations and they also may contain some of the system or production variations, so the parameters to the system as seen by the operator of the system. That's one thing. So you can get, you can end up with a lot of key value, key values in uh, those configuration files. Another thing of note is that we usually use more, more than one configuration file. So like I could say that typically a gateway for everyone or most people actually, many people starting with Elixir and working with Elixir is Phoenix Web Framework. And many of us actually generate projects with Phoenix Project Generator. Like personally, I I even don't know how to manually add Phoenix to to the system. So uh, what Phoenix Project Generator does is it creates five configuration files. So like you write mixphx.new, this is how you generate the project, very easy. And you get five configuration files. One is called config.exs, that's like the master file, the main file, if you will. Then we have three files per each mix environment, so prod, test, and dev. And then we have prod secrets.exs, which has some secrets that are not supposed to be committed to the GitHub repo. Now, in addition to this, these five files do not contain the whole story because there are also some parameters configured into source file, like regular source files. When you use Ecto and, of course, you use Phoenix, or you have your some of the endpoint parameters, like, say, listening port is configured in the endpoint file, which is like your regular source file. And again, in Ecto, you have this uh, function called init, which where you can provide some additional parameters. So there's actually seven places where you have the whole configuration. Now, in addition to all this, I also have the opinion that many of these parameters which reside there, or many of these values which reside there, are not configuration at all, or at least some of them. And some of them are configuration depending on the specifics of the project. So for example, when you generate a new Phoenix project, you're going to have a module for the error view in your configuration. 
And it's like no configuration at all. This is like a module in your code which you're going to use, and it's not configurable at all. You're going to have some, you're going to have, for example, Ecto database adapter specified, so like Postgres by default. And in my opinion, this is not configuration at all. This is literally a parameter to some function because this is what it boils down to. In the end, some function is going to be called stating that you want to use Ecto, which is like a database uh, access layer for Postgres, right? So this is not uh, at all configuration. You don't vary it for different compile targets and you don't vary it for production in most cases. In all the cases I have ever witnessed, HTTP port was not configurable. I understand that it is configurable for many people, but for me, it's always the same. And I'm talking about like production projects. Uh, I always use the same port uh, for a single application in the development, in the test, in production. So at least this, these are the scenarios I have. I have had. And again, I'm not saying that it's always going to be the case, but say HTTP port, HTTP port is not necessarily a configuration at all in my experience, right? So there are definitely counter cases. But either way, you end up with a bunch of these things stuffed together. So in summary, you have some compile time variations, you have some system configuration, and you have some regular parameters stuffed into these seven files. And then you have other parameters which you just have when you're invoking functions which are, for whatever reasons, not included in configuration. So we get we end up with a lot of bloat. So that's one of my personal problems. And I personally have had like issues actually analyzing and understanding these configurations because they are overlaid through these overrides and there are a bunch of files there. And I've had problems grasping, you know, or even properly understanding what is exactly the configuration of something. Right. So this is one issue. Let's let's stop here. Maybe let me hear if you have some objections, objections or other questions. No, you're only gonna get agreement. Because I'm going to say, like, yeah, I've had that problem too, where you're just trying to figure out, like, okay, what is the configuration that I have now? And then you're having to resort to opening an IEX terminal and then actually saying application dot, you get in, get ENV to find out what is the settings that are present. Mm -hmm. and yeah, so it, that is a problem. And, yeah. and like in your blog post, you uh, identify the, also the problem of the secrets file. And how mm -hmm. that just kind of creates that clumsy situation where it's not checked in, but the code won't compile unless it's present. So everyone has to create one. Mm -hmm. Yes, like I've had to work <laughs> around that with projects too, you know, where you just say, okay, well, we're just going to do a different. We're going to say, like, we're going to create a sample file and mm -hmm. that will have defaults. And so, yeah, I mean, it, we can certainly improve this situation. So exactly. yeah, I also, uh, I found myself in Ruby getting very angry when people would do like class-based configuration for API clients because it's like, okay, you've just decided I'm only using one of these ever. And then I found myself doing the same thing sort of based on how config worked for projects I was building. And it felt, I felt like a sham when I realized what I was doing. Yeah. So, I mean, in general, like these configurations, I've sort of tried to challenge this status quo. And uh, some comments I've received, like some people agree, of course, and some people disagree. People are usually say like this blanket statement that I want to have my configuration in one place. But you know, what is this one place? We're talking about seven files. That's not like one place. So it's not really clear. And a bunch of things are stuffed in those seven files together and like grasping what exactly is the outcome. The output of that configuration becomes harder and harder, you know, as your project grows. Like even when you start with basic Phoenix, it's not necessarily obvious what some configuration value is in some environment. Okay, so anyway, that's that's one issue, but it's not the only issue. There are other issues with configurations, so I'm just going to go until you stop me. 
For you, Loot Crate is offering an opportunity to save 10% on any new subscription at LootCrate.com. Just enter the promo code BRIDGE10 for 10% savings. Loot Crate is one of my favorite things. Every month I get a box in the mail, costs less than $20, and it comes with all kinds of goodies. I have stuff from just looking at my shelf, Batman, Spider-Man, Ninja Turtles, Back to the Future, Lord of the Rings, Star Wars, and much, much more. So if you're a geek, a gamer, anything like that, and you want cool stuff to put around your office, uh, cool t-shirts, comic books, etc., then definitely check out Loot Crate. To save 10% on your new subscription, go to lootcrate.com slash ruby. Again, that's lootcrate.com slash ruby to save 10% on any new subscription. Enter the promo code BRIDGE10 for 10% savings. So another thing worth of noting is that configuration is like a free-form key value. So you set some keys and some values. Now, remember, like my point is, at the end, it always boils down to some function being involved with these values, right? And what you lose when you have like this plain configuration file is you lose any sort of possibility for documentation and type checking. So in Elixir, Elixir is not a statically typed language, dynamically typed language, but still we have these type specifications, which are great for documenting purposes. And sometimes they can even actually work as checking whether some proper types are passed. And many libraries use these type specifications like the Elixir standard library, the Erlang standard library, and third-party libraries. However, if a library takes some parameters as through, through configuration, which is actually in my view done very frequently and too frequently, then the library loses this opportunity to properly type spec the, the parameters. So usually what you have is in the documentation somewhere, not necessarily obvious to find, you will have the list of configuration you can provide, of configuration parameters, which you provide in your config file. And then if you're lucky, this list is up to date. And also if you're lucky, you will not make a typo or you will not provide the wrong type. If you do make a mistake, maybe the thing will break early. Again, if you're lucky, if you're not lucky, the thing might not work silently. So you think it works, but it doesn't work. Maybe it works today. Maybe tomorrow you update the, the upgrade, the dependency, and then it stops working silently. So a bunch of these things are broken simply because we use this free form storage of, or like some sort of a side channel of these configuration key values. And as I mentioned, the documentation is in itself a problem. So if a library is taking some parameter as a regular parameter to a function, then it's in the documentation, right? You see the parameters, you see the description, you see the type specification. But if it's in config, then a library author has to place it somewhere. So for example, in Phoenix, it's not immediately obvious where you can find these configuration parameters. You have to go to the Phoenix documentation, then you have to know to go to the documentation for the endpoint module, and only then will you find the list of parameters. So it's kind of, you know, I would say a substandard experience as soon as a library author decides to, to use the configuration. And similar arguments even hold for just the application itself. So like you're writing the application, it has a lot of code, a bunch of you on the team are working on it. And if you use configuration, then it's not as obvious as when you're using just functions, which you can document and type spec properly. So I was wondering if you had a direction that you're proposing as a, as a solution? I am. I am. Sure I am. Are we going to reveal it now or are we going to still discuss some other issues? <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, uh, as just as far as background, one of the things I just wanted to mention, like as part of that whole configuration and where does it come in, like in the distillery docks, Paul Schoenfelder, who's a Bitwalker online, he mm-hmm. uses, a, he created a library called Tommel Elixir. I'll just put that in there mm-hmm. in the show, show notes. And that is using a, I would say a somewhat non-standard uh, configuration file format called Tommel, T-O-M-L. Mm-hmm. But and so I have a, actually a friend who's uh, been creating using the same library as a basis, been creating one that does uh, JSON, mm. and just kind of giving you like a, a more standardized format. But it's it's still the idea of then then you have to know that all of the config is being stored outside of the application, and so it still is a problem. So, mm-hmm. but yeah, so I'd love to hear. Well, okay. Well, what do you think is the next step then in terms of the discussion? Is there something so we, need to, we should cover first? Let me take a step back because you, since you mentioned Bitwalker and this Tomal Elixir, so uh, this is the new thing introduced in Elixir, uh, sorry, in Distillery 2.0, which are called config providers. So to explain that, I first want to explain another frequent issue, which is usually the first issue mentioned with uh, configuration, and that is the fact that configuration is evaluated at the build server. So like you have this Elixir configuration, which is your uh, free-form Elixir code, but runs with special semantics at the build machine. And say you want to fetch, determine the HTTP port from the system environment. So you invoke system.getEnv or whatever the function is called, and it works on your machine. And then you build, a, you build the release and deploy, and it doesn't work because the environment has been determined on the build machine already. And there have been like different kind of hacks to work around that particular issue. One thing called replace OS VARs and another thing called system tuple. And I don't want to go into these things because they are fairly clumsy and limited hacks. And they are pretty much historical things because now Distillery 2.0 has a much better solution for it in form of uh, config providers, which is like a spaceship where everything else is like an abacus or I don't know how to describe it. So yeah, uh, these config providers are pretty good. People are raving about it. I like them myself. So the way it works is you have like some module which has to conform to a special uh, contract, and then distillery is going to is going to generate like the the flow at the production, which is going to execute this code before the release itself is started. So special instance or separate instance of the Erlang virtual machine is started. And in there, you have these config providers, which can then read from the OS environment, from etcd, from toml files, from JSON files, and so on and so forth. And they, the task of this code is to provide these key values. And then the distillery framework, if you will, however you want to call it, the generic code is going to store these key values in, into the proper file. And now you have properly configured the system. So it works. It works wonderful. It's very easy to, like, even change your uh, current config script, like Elixir config script, to split it in the compile time and runtime script and have the runtime stuff, such as, for example, determining uh, something from the OS environment running actually on the production. No, it's a great solution by itself. That being said, I'm not completely happy with it because I still think it's an improvisation. And it has, again, we have special runtime semantics. So this code that is running in these config providers like Tomal or JSON provider is still not running on your Elixir release node. So what this means is that, for example, if it hangs, you cannot actually connect to the node and do some tracing or live debugging. And there might be some other maybe special uh, limitations, like if you want to say you want to connect to other Erlang nodes and then uh, get configuration from them. Uh, as far as I understand, at least in 
the current form that probably won't work or maybe it's going to require some hackiness. And there's like some amount of ceremony in there too. So uh, config providers are great, don't get me wrong, and they're going to solve many problems, but I still think they are overly clumsy. And the big solution <laughs> which I'm trying to propose is basically boils down to using or deferring more to the late decisions, to runtime decisions, meaning just taking and passing configuration as function parameters as much as possible. So like, for example, uh, let's, let's do a contrived example. Let's say that you are writing an HTTP server library, like web server library. And there are two ways how you can accept the HTTP ports from your cl client. One way is to accept it as configuration, this mechanism I have explained. And another way is to accept it as a function, right? Uh, as a function parameter. So your client invokes start server, passes HTTP port 80 and maybe some additional parameters and it works. And uh, the second option is much more flexible because you pretty much allow your clients uh, full flexibility and full freedom in determining, in deciding how they will fetch these parameters, where will they fetch them from. So what this means is when I'm starting this uh, HTTP server, I can read, say, from Vault, from etcd, from another Erlang node, from a JSON file, from a TOML file, wherever I need to read it, and I can read it using plain Elixir code, which runs in the release node in the same context where all, all other code is running. So this is really something that I propose, and it's not like super revolutionary. You will find the same guidelines actually included now in the official Elixir library guidelines. So they will, they will recommend the same thing. Uh, use as a library author, use as much of the parameters, as much as you can of the regular function parameters rather than mandating uh, configuration, uh, passing parameters through configuration. Yeah, I think that just makes sense. It, it's just flexible, makes things composable. Maybe I want to run two of your same application on different ports in the Port same runtime. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I mean, uh, another thing is uh, one thing that I sort of have been complaining. Uh, I believe that to the extent the Phoenix generator is pushing the community and all of us in sort of a wrong direction by forcing a bunch of stuff by default into this configuration. So as, again, as I said, when you generate your project with uh, Phoenix new or phx.new, a bunch of stuff is by default in these config scripts. And then I presume many people, and me included, like my team, we also actually historically overused the configuration because like it seems like the right way to do, but we never really thought about what actually constitutes a configuration. You know, so what should actually go into these files? And we sometimes have these pull requests where, where we discuss like, should this constant go into configuration? I don't know. What is a configuration? You know, what do you guys think? What is a configuration? Yeah, I don't, I don't have a succinct answer, uh, which is the, the first thing that sort of came to mind when I was reading your blog post the first time. Was, I don't, I don't have a boundary on a bunch of the stuff that I know goes in there to say like, this totally doesn't belong there except for, hey, things I want to tweak at runtime seem like the sorts of things that I want to be able to configure. Right. So that would be like the, what I like to call a system parameters right? from the operator standpoint, you know, so the operator yes. might decide to maybe change the log level or maybe change the HTTP port. Maybe you want to provide it to the operator or maybe not, you know, so, but you have to make like a conscious decision. What is actually, what would actually be those things? Yeah. And, and also if I want to be flexible, you know, if I wanted to hook into something like HetCT and maybe actively react to a configuration change that said, Hey, you should swap ports. Like mm -hmm. it's very clear that using replace OS bars isn't a solution there. 
Right? So that's <laughs> obviously something that config in the way that I know that I would like to have it sort of falls flat. Right. So yeah, my, my opinion is that config is for many people, and again, me including, like I'm going to be first to admit to, to make mistakes here, is that it's very arbitrary in its nature. You know, like things just somehow end up being there because they feel like config. You know, I literally, what motivated that blog post, one of the main thing was when one of my coworkers, when reviewing my pull request, he mentioned like, this feels like config. And I wonder like, why does it feel like config? You know, and what is that kind of decision-making? Shouldn't we have like some sort of rules or at least some big guidelines, like what is a config and what's not a config? Yeah, and so like now I build things that um, sort of take in client configuration as a parameter. And then thing like, you know, if I have an API client that I'm going to talk to basically always with the same API uh, key, then, hey, look, I have a module that, that outputs that thing and pulls that from the, from the system environment. But um, mm. yeah, I mean, I don't have... Aside from like knowing that that's how I run that sort of thing now, so that I have flexibility, I don't. I still don't have good guidelines, a good heuristic. Yeah. Now, now I'm sort of swinging in maybe another extreme where I'm starting with nothing is config until proven otherwise. You know. So, <laughs> and uh, you start with parameters again. These things are at the essence of it. All these things are parameters, nothing more. There's nothing but functions and parameters. Uh, in the end. And uh, why would a parameter be promoted to some config? You know, there have to be some explicit reasons. So one reason could be if you want to vary the settings between different uh, compile targets, that's like config scripts are a convenient mechanism for that. And then you have another reason, which is when you want to do support operator configuration. And I would say that for that scenario, config scripts are not good anyway, because you probably, like what happens is that production these values end up in the, the Erlang format and like no administrator is really going to have an easy time editing that. So you probably want to have like a TOML or a JSON or something of the sort to uh, assist your operators and administrators. So for example, at Airclock, we have an interesting use case. We actually ship our system to clients, right? So like if you're our client, we're going to give you two Docker images and you need to start the containers yourself. And you have, uh, of course, configuration support. Uh, you basically have to mount a JSON file, well-defined JSON file, which we actually even uh, validate the schema. And then we have actually cherry-picked these properties, which make sense for you to change. So it's a fairly simple JSON format in the end. You, there are no like, I don't know, hundreds of properties which you don't care about. You have like maybe 10 properties which you actually do care about, and you edit them through that mounted JSON file. So do you have a preferred format for that? I mean, it, you keep bringing up JSON. Is is that mainly just because it's a common, well-understood format or does it make a difference one way or the other? Yeah, the, the former, the former. It's common, like has some typing and I'm not like a super fan of JSON for various reasons, among others, you don't, other things you cannot have comments in there. But we did, decided on JSON because it's like fairly easy and uh, ubiquitous and I think that uh, most of our clients and their administrators should be able to edit the JSON file. Right. I, I guess the other question is, I was going to ask about environment variables and you kind of talked around some of that, but you know, couldn't you set it up so that you have different apps running under different users and then use different environment variables that way, or is that too much work? There used to be problems with providing or fetching this configuration from anything other than having them hard-coded because of these problems. So we did have these hacks which would actually support these, that would be like 12-factor applications, right, what you're talking about. Yeah. 
Precisely. So the, we had this replace OS VARs and this system tuple, and the, the, the common theme was that that was some hack which would allow you actually to set environment variables and then fetch settings from, from there. We, for example, in our case, we mostly don't do that. In, in the previous incarnation of our system, we actually relied more on environment variables. I think that one problem I have with AMPs are that they are basically strings. So um, mm-hmm. you don't really have like an, any sort of good typing. So JSON is a little bit better in yeah. that respect. And then, of course, if you want to have some hierarchical formats that, that also can become messy, you pretty much have to just unwrap it and have like a bunch of prefixed end variables instead of maybe a nicer JSON hierarchy. Yeah, I use, I use replace OS bars extensively, and I'm somewhat eager to, to stop. Mm-hmm. I think with the, the distillery 2.0, it, it really, there does really not even need to use that, yeah. So you, you said that there are some things you don't like about JSON. So, I mean, is there a format you like or do you just have some a, a wish list of a format that doesn't exist? Yeah, that, that's a good question. I'm not really sure. I'm, I'm, so in my view, I would actually like if I, will, I was able to run everything in Elixir directly. And the thing is that Elixir has this support. So it's many people will say the same holds for Erlang. I mean, it's everything is rooted in Erlang. It's like the operating system for your code. So you can, in fact, uh, just start your system and pass a bunch of these uh, parameters to your this so-called supervision tree, and you organize your services like that through your code. And then you expose only the bare minimum which you want to expose for your operators. And that will be like then fairly simple files. I don't know, maybe Tomal would work better or maybe JSON. I'm not really sure about that. Um, I don't know. What do you think? Is there something better which would be something like strong type and support comments? <laughs> Not, not that I'm aware of. Like I've been doing Kubernetes, and YAML is the, the <laughs> that is used most often there. I do like that I can have comments. I will say okay. that. Yeah, I, I feel like YAML is an example of a pretty low bar, like local maximum. <laughs> um, it's uh, I'm I hate it every time I'm in it. Um, yeah. yeah. But at the same I, I, time, it is so easy to create accidentally create invalid JSON. Like you have you left a comma on yeah. or something. I will say the idea, yeah, JSON's terrible. I'm not saying YAML's worse than JSON. Uh, don't get me wrong. JSON's just actually very bad. But you can use it and everyone does, so you do. Yeah. That's the JavaScript way. Um, I would say between YAML and JSON, I would probably pick JSON, you know, but it's it's a really hard choice. It's like choosing lesser of two evils. <laughs> yeah, I would pick YAML, but I wouldn't pick either. Uh, I like the idea of just outputting like a struct that is like a defined type. that is the configuration mm. for my application. And, you know, however you get to that, whether you have a provider that... I, mean, I don't do this yet at all, of course, because that would be work. But um, mm-hmm. that seems like where I would want to be. And then you can have a provider that reads in the, the TOML and merges it into the struct. And then you just have stuff that uses that configuration value. Mm-hmm. But I think like the, the key is always to first to really clean up, to, to purge this configuration in the first place. Like... My, my impression is that there are a bunch of things there. When we're talking about particular system, not like a generic component, like say Nginx, you know, Nginx has to be highly configurable because it's going to be used in different scenarios. But uh, when we're talking about our system, probably a bunch of stuff which are in theory configurable, really no one cares about that. Yeah, so where would you... So like recently I've had a, a library I wrote. It was just an internal to the project. But there was configuration, but that configuration really it does not belong on being 
you know, it's, it's configured by the, for the project as I'm not sure what you call that, but it's not like an environment setting. It's not, it's like when I bring in this library, I want to use it. And this is how I'm going to use it for this project. I'm not setting it anywhere out outside of the project. So where should those kinds of settings be? I mean, obviously they're just parameters, but like, yeah. where would you like to see something like that so that we can pull those things out of our config files and keep mm-hmm. our config files a little more pure in that way? This is a great question. So in my view, these things should be grouped by scope. So what this means is let's take Ecto, for example, or Phoenix application when you generate it. So by default in config, you configure a repo, which is like the, your database, and the endpoint, which is your server. And those things are configured in the same five files, <laughs> plus two. So uh, I think that it would be actually better if we configured the endpoint in the, say, endpoint module, or maybe in some other module, but let's say endpoint module. So what does configuring endpoint mean? Like, are you going to use HTTP and slash or HTTPS? Uh, which port are you going to use? You may have some of uh, this base key, uh, like secret thing, so things like that, these things belong to the endpoint and they're then logically grouped together. Likewise, when you're configuring Ecto uh, or your database, then the database name, server and user uh, should be configured in the database module, like the repo module, for example. I believe that it, this actually improves discoverability because like, if I want to find out how my database settings or parameters are retrieved, where from, the first place I'm going to look to is the database module, right? That makes sense. You start from there and then you work your way through functions if you don't find it there. And you start from there and you see it there. Just clean, you know, uh, unobstructed by all this other noise from all the other pieces of your system. And I mean, of course, the fact that the, the configure that the parameters are passed there doesn't mean that they are defined there. So you could open up the repo module and see that, I don't know, the database name is fetched from the operating system environment and the user password is fetched from some secret file or something like that. And you could even end up hoisting those inputs to your config, and that's your exposed config, conceivably, right? But you, but it shouldn't be kind of hard-coded expected. Mm-hmm. Right, right. I mean, it's not going to be hard-coded, probably. You don't want to hard-code at least the username and the password. And, I mean, the server is usually going to be different in production than on your machine, right? Yeah, sorry, so, I, meant, I meant the config shouldn't be just always hoisted up in total, up into the the actual like uh, operator facing config, for instance. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. Like in production, maybe they shouldn't be able to turn off HTTPS. Exactly, precisely. And this ties to the fact that uh, you always have to, I think, consciously ask, is this actually a configurable parameter or not? Do you want to make this configurable parameter at all? One thing that you mentioned is you keep talking about secrets. And, and I, I got sidetracked for a minute and I may have missed it, but did you talk about how you encrypt or otherwise protect secrets if you're putting them into some kind of config file like a JSON file? Yeah, so that's sort of out of the scope of uh, how you determine configuration. There are these secrets which are by default just Phoenix will just propose that you have this prod secrets EXS file where you just define these secrets and it's up to you how are you going to protect them, you know. So, But you probably want to use some some uh, either some uh, encryption scheme or maybe, I don't know, Vault or whatever else for that. Yeah, I, I push them up to Kubernetes secrets and then mount them as environment variables, as an example, and then use good old replace OS pops. <laughs> right. So yeah. uh, that, I mean, I was... that's what I was wondering, right, is that, you know, and, and Rails has a secrets file too, but ultimately, if you encrypt them, then you have to provide the key to the app in order mm. to encrypt them. And then your 
he is a secret. <laughs> so yeah. it, it feels like this circular problem. Down the rabbit hole. Yeah, that's true. I mean, ultimately, it's, you, you have to fetch it from somewhere. So our clients provide a secret in the JSON file, and it's you know their responsibility to actually restrict the, the access to the JSON file itself. Previously, tying to what Josh said, in so our current system is like the second incarnation. We actually had a previous incarnation, which was significantly different. And then we used etcd as our configuration provider. Back then it was Erlang, so we didn't even, we of course didn't have all the new fancy stuff available in Elixir now, like Distillery 2.0. So what I did is I would use replace OSVARS kind of thing just to fetch the etcd location. And then uh, during the application startup, so you have like this entry point, I would fetch parameters or the secrets from the etcd. Um, this, however, there will be some edge cases when these don't work, usually when a library overuses a configuration scheme. So when it actually fetches the parameters during the library startup, which happens before our own client startup, application startup is uh, executed. Yeah, I mean, so that's the sort of thing that kind of drives home the point of, hey, config is unwieldy when you're dealing with that sort of thing. And I've, I've, dealt, with, I've dealt with that as well. Uh, where mm. libraries sort of absolutely assume they're going to be configured a certain way and it reduces flexibility. Mm -hmm. Precisely. This used to be especially the case. So first of all, this is not an Elixir thing. I've seen this thing happening in uh, Erlang libraries too. For one example, I can immediately think of was React Ensemble, which is maybe not so famous library, but it's an interesting library that uh, I don't know if it even still it is maintained, but at the time it uh, gave us like strongly consistent key value, distributed key value, and it required mandatory configuration upfront. So I was not able to tweak it with any of the traditional hacks I, I normally did. And this really made it hard for me to test the thing locally. Like I wanted to start a couple of local nodes from the same project that didn't work out of the box. So I actually forked the project and had to modify the project. And I mean, it, it's like a pretty terrible user experience. And in general, uh, my impression is that Elixir libraries uh, in the, like say early days or maybe up to a year ago, they used to uh, really overuse the configuration thing. So you would configure, I remember there was like for example, Guardian, the authentication library, the early version required like a global setting. You configure Guardian with some parameters and you can only therefore have uniform uh, authentication configuration in your system. We actually had problems with that too uh, at some point. Uh, now the new Guardian, I think, works in a better way. So one important thing that, or two important things that happened. So first there was a blog post by Mikhail Muskalov, so from the... Elixir core team, he blogged about configuration in Elixir. And then a bit later, I think that parts of this post and uh, some other uh, recommendations have been included in the official Elixir documentation for the library authors. And in there, you will also find a lot of advices like don't really, don't use configuration unless you really need to. Uh, because when a library mandates configuration, then it really limits the flexibility of the user. Even with all these fixes and workarounds we have, Ultimately, when a library mandates configuration, it's going to somehow end up as being a singleton thing. So the library sort of constrains the user into running at most one thing, really preventing like uh, things like dynamically starting multiple instances and things like that. And it just makes it, in general, much clumsier for uh, the user code to provide the parameters. Do you have any stories of people getting this wrong and fixing it or having pain because of it or people just getting it right and 
I guess I guess people don't talk about that because it just kind of goes <laughs> to go, and they they don't complain about it because it just is smooth. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Do you, do you have any good stories? I guess is what I'm asking. Well, I mean, there are many stories. So, like we uh, we started with Elixir fairly early in our system, and then, as I said, many early libraries actually got it wrong. It's, it's not it's not a big deal, you know. It's just uh, they they used some other pre existing libraries as a template, and they just went that way. And somehow, this story about overusing configuration, I think, is an old story, even from the Erlang days. That's my impression. And so then we, at our project, you know, we would face these problems and we had to do all sorts of shenanigans. So for example, I would provide a fake configuration because I had to in the config file and then in the application start, start code, I would actually rewrite it at runtime. I think we even have such code running uh, still running, so I don't, don't think we have changed it. Sometimes we we basically had to just accept the reality and uh, maybe deal with uh, that we cannot have variations because uh, when a library mandates a configuration, as I said, it's a singleton, so then you cannot have two different settings in two different execution contexts. Like in one place, you cannot have one setting and in another place, a different setting. So we sort of just decided to live with it. But these were the things of the past. Uh, one thing that I would mention, and I think this really, this would be the credit for uh, Paul Schoenfeller or, or Bitwalker. Uh, so he, in his exploration, so he's really doing some intensive work on these OTP releases, and he really identified that, uh, so people coming to Elixir are frequently saying that the deployment is confusing. And one of the big causes for this is quite likely this configuration or over-reliance on configuration and all sorts of problems that I've mentioned that come with this configuration with different execution contexts and so on. And I mean, uh, so Paul really nicely identified that. And I think, again, that really good way for most libraries would be to accept just parameters and let the users deal with how are they actually going to uh, fetch these parameters from whichever source they want to fetch it. I guess one more question I have is around the idea. I think one of the reasons we put things in the application config files is because we know it happens very early on in the setup process. And being that Elixir is a more functional language, it's, it's kind of the question is, well, how do I put in some config for, you know, that's optional maybe to the project? How do I put in some config that will be available at runtime and it ha- needs to be available very early? Right, like so I think that's one of the reasons we just kind of stick things up there because it goes, it, it gets put into uh, application env just by mm. putting it in there. So I think, right. I think ultimately yeah. you're either you're either going to be running a, a supervisor, in which case, hey, there's where you configure it, or you're going to be using a library, in which case it can take configuration as an argument. And so like then if, it doesn't if matter. It is a library, like, if it is a library, and and you pass it configuration, like where does that where does it put it? you know, to hold on to it, does it, like, does it, it, it shouldn't, I mean, so yeah, my argument would be if it's a library and not an application, then it, then it shouldn't, it doesn't have any state. If it's an application, I think it probably still shouldn't store it in most cases, so, I mean, but. A library can have a state, of course, like if, when you start a Phoenix uh, instance or a Phoenix server, there is a port and, you know, Phoenix should know which port is it, for example, and, and some, maybe some other parameters which are related to your web server, or maybe even a better example is Ecto repo. So you start a repo and there are parameters to that repo. These are the connection parameters. And what's going to happen is some connections are going to be started over time. So Ecto has to keep this, mm-hmm. this state, but it doesn't have to keep it in an application environment. Application environment is a global shared mutable state. 
why would it have to keep it there? It can just keep it on the stack, you know, in some parameters, and it's just going to invoke other functions passing those parameters. So that's exactly what I'm talking about. And so I, I'm thinking just from a practical a aspect, like, so where do I put it? Do I put it like in a, in a gen, gen agent, like an agent, like a gen server kind of thing and like just kind of mm -hmm. hold on to that config that way? You know, I, I'm just kind of curious as to where you would mm -hmm. recommend that, that, that it goes. So sooner or later, there is some gen server or something like that, which is actually going to respond to user requests, right? And then you're going to put it into the state of that gen server, for example. Okay. And, uh, whenever a request arrives, like start me new instance, the gen server has the state in its internally, right, in its own state, and it's just know the connection parameters and starts. Now, it's worth mentioning that there are some libraries that, that have to be configured before our application starts. So again, our application start callback is not the first thing running in our system. You know, we have dependencies. that These dependencies are started before our application is started, and they may need some configuration before that. The only legitimate case I can think of where actually a dependency or a third-party library needs some setting before we start is logger, right? So we That's have actually logger. what I was configuring. I was configuring logger. <laughs> <laughs> Customized yeah. logging, like putting out in JSON formats and uh, mm. being able to uh, blacklist different metadata keys because I want all of them by default, but I don't want these. I don't want PID. I don't want the line number, you know, that, that kind of stuff. Mm. So with logger, it's difficult because, I mean, there are other applications that might be using logger during their startup. So a bunch of stuff could be logged before the first line of your actual code is being executed. And so you want to provide some configuration for logger upfront. And this is, uh, in my opinion, a great case for config or application environment. I can't really think of any other case which, uh, I, would, which I would justify. There probably are, I just cannot think of any. Uh, and I would like to tie again uh, to uh, Paul's great guides uh, for distilleries. So he discusses some of these things in the new distillery guides, and he mentions these, how he calls, a la carte OTP applications. And this is a great section. So this is how I feel that most of the libraries should be designed. And uh, like, if you're not sure how to design a library, you should design it in the a la carte way. And what a la carte really means is a factory, if you will. So let's take an example. It's going to be easier to think about. Let's say you, have, you use Cowboy Web Server. So not like a full Phoenix web framework, but this lower level library. And Cowboy is really a factory of web servers. So you can basically... Uh, you request a child specification and you inject the Cowboy server into your supervision tree and you can start multiple multiple web servers from your code and this code runs in your supervision tree. And what this means is that you're in the full control of how your system is starting up or shutting down for that matter too, right? So basically almost nothing runs in the Cowboy supervision tree and therefore when the system is started, Cowboy startup code doesn't really do almost anything, maybe just sets up some global process or whatever, the Ecto does something similar, and then everything else is started on demand by the user code or by the application code, and it's controlled by you. And if you're designing an a la carte, what, how Paul calls it, a la carte OTP application, then you're giving really a full freedom to your user to first and foremost start multiple instances, so you don't constrain yourself to like some singleton or global instance, and you also allow your user to actually run whatever code they want before they actually want to start the thing. And this is, in my view, the best way to design libraries other than maybe logger, because I really cannot see the case for running multiple loggers, and they would still have to be started before the application 
uh, before the other applications are started. No, that makes sense. All right, well, let's go ahead and do picks. Do you run your own freelance business? Or maybe you're thinking about picking up some business on the side. Well, then you need FreshBooks. FreshBooks is the quickest and easiest way to get invoices out to your clients. It's easy to use. It works anywhere, available from any device, uh, on the desktop, iPhone, iPad, Android, and all of your data is backed up and secure. And it makes it really easy to get organized and get paid. You'll be tracking time, logging expenses, and invoicing your clients in no time. You can also save time billing, freeing up several days per month to focus on the work that you love, and you get paid faster. FreshBooks customers are paid on average five days faster because there's a link on the invoice that says pay me now. And it's a great way to grow your business. Plus, FreshBooks is offering a 30-day trial. That's right, 30-day trial if you try them out. So go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Once again, for a 30-day trial, go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Josh, do you want to start us with picks? Yes, I do. So I'm going to pick one thing. It's called Elm Beam on hkgums slash Elm Beam on GitHub. And it is a, it, it generates Beam code from Elm code. And he's also written separately, I think called Codec Beam. That is just a facility for generating Beam code in Haskell. So normally when you're generating Beam code, you're going through Erlang, but this generates it directly from Haskell. So it's really neat. It's a opportunity for more people to build languages that compile to the Beam. And so I want people to know about it. And that's it. Awesome. That sounds really cool. I actually was chatting with Richard Feldman last, last week about Elm. And uh, lots of interesting stuff going on there for sure. Mark, what are your picks? So I just had one this week. And that is a project that I use. It's called Etcher.io. And what it is, is it's an electron-based application for burning ISO images to USB. And you think, man, Electron, that is big overkill, right? And maybe it is, but I love it because it looks nice. It's like a little background. I, I'm a Linux user. I prefer Linux over Windows and Mac. And so I use it for my desktop and laptop and everything. And so frequently, I will be trying out a new distro or something like that. And so I, you know, you download an ISO and you burn it to like a thumb drive or something. And Etcher is a nice one just because it won't let you accidentally select your, your primary hard drive, right? It will only let you select a removable drive. And it just does really nice because it gives progress and, and does the CRC checks and everything. So it's a, it's a fun one. If you're ever playing with ISO images, uh, just pick etcher.io. Nice. I'll go ahead and jump in with some picks. So the first one that I have, I was doing, uh, I think it was my Angular story. No, it wasn't. It was my JavaScript story uh, interview yesterday. And the, the person I was talking to, he was... <laughs> I, I showed up a little bit late and he's like, oh, it's fine. I was just playing with tweet mashups. So uh, I think it's tweetmashup.com. Yeah, tweetmashup.com. So uh, what, what you can do is you can put in your Twitter username or anyone else's for that matter. And then um, Sasha, what's your Twitter username? It's S-A-S-A-J-U-R-I-C. So basically, my name, dot le- my name, last name, without any special characters. Awesome. So you, you put in these usernames or the Twitter handles on uh, tweetmashup.com. Okay. And then it, uh, 
put stuff together. So the uh, <laughs> combination I got was good morning, hashtag lambed up. Okay. Elixir in action. Second edition is 40% off today. Get it. To get it, use the code. And then it has code in it. At the discount is also valid for other Manning books. Happy to send along proposals for future advertising. <laughs> so, so it mashed in something that I put in about future advertising and sometime in the past with your tweet about Elixir in action. Okay, so, cool. Anyway, uh, yeah, you, you get some funky stuff. Some of them are really kind of funny and clever. I think the one that I did with that guest, it was basically like the future something. It, it was really short, but it was really kind of funny and weird at the same time. So anyway, I've, I've kind of been playing with this. I wonder if I can just run this again. <laughs> Here we go. So this one's better. So this one's a mashup between Sasha and I again. It says, I just got a call from my wife, the director at some point. And then it has the ASCII smiley. <laughs> <laughs> and then you can hit the tweet this button. So anyway, tweet mashup is kind of fun. The other pick that I'm going to throw out here is uh, the Shush app. Now, I tend to not use it mainly because I just know the key combination to mute and unmute uh, Zoom while we're talking. But it is kind of a nice app when we're recording. And a few people had it installed during Ruby Rogues. And so I'm going to shout, shout out about that. It's basically push to talk or push to mute. You can configure it one, either way. And uh, what it does is if you're in a noisy environment or something like that and you're trying to record a show, then you can make it so that you have to press a key in order for your mic to be enabled. And yeah, so then when you take your hand off of the key or off the keyboard then it goes back to mute so that you're not putting noise out there inadvertently. So anyway, kind of a nice app. And uh, it's something that we recommend to our guests as they're preparing. So anyway, uh, Sasha, what are your picks? Okay, so I have two picks related to the topics we discussed. Uh, so one are the library guidelines in the uh, Elixir official documentation. And another one is a section called runtime configuration in uh, the Stillery documentation. So these are really two great resources, which I would advise for the library authors and then for anyone who actually wants to deploy something. And then I have three of shameless self-plug links. So one is the link to Elixir in Action 2nd Edition, which is due to come out soon. Not really sure when it's up to Manning now, but the content is free. We are very late in the production, so... It's going to come out uh, pretty soon, I think within a month or so, I hope. My own blog, The Erlangelist at theerlangelist.com. And then uh, one talk, which I did on multiple occasions last year, it's called Solid Ground. And for anyone who actually uh, is interested in into learning what Beam is all about, the Erlang virtual machine, and why are these Beam languages like Erlang and Elixir uh, very compelling, um, this is the talk where I try to capture uh, the essence of it. So. Yeah, those will be my picks. Awesome. And uh, I usually ask where people can find you online, but you called all that out. So, um, anyway. exactly. I'm, on, I'm on Twitter, and otherwise, whoever has some questions, <clears throat> I recommend elixirforum.com. So, let's add that one to the link too, because uh, there are many people online there. So, I'm there. You have like uh, Jose, uh, the creator of Elixir. You have uh, Joe and Robert, the creators of Erlang, uh, Chris, the creator of Phoenix, is there, the Elixir core team, and a bunch of other uh, great people, very helpful. So like whatever questions about Elixir you have, elixirforum.com would be the place I recommend. Nice. So I wanted to give one more shout out to his book. Um, when I was first coming to Elixir, uh, I, I started with 
Dave Thomas's Ruby book or Elixir book. And I was having a hard time kind of getting it, getting Elixir. And I found Elixir in Action from Sasha Yurik. And it was the first edition book. And that really clicked with me. And I just think, you know, it's nothing against Dave Thomas's book. I just think some books are better adapted or, or, or written for different people. So if you come to one book and that's not speaking to you, feel free to try another one. So I just wanted to give a shout out to Sasha's book that it was really the book that helped me kind of get Elixir and, and really get into it and enjoy it. So I'm looking forward to the updated version. Thank you very much. I'm really happy to hear that. All right. Well, uh, let's go ahead and wrap this up. Uh, encourage people to go check out the book and we will catch you all next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.